I guess you were right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? From the haunted heartland in Omaha, Nebraska, my name is Brian Corey, and I welcome you all to this special holiday spectacular Christmas episode of the Necronomicast. My guest for a late night conversation is writer and producer Mark Onspaugh. Mark's a native Californian. He worked with the Groundlings. He studied special effects makeup in college. He's won recognition and awards for his screenwriting, his books, his novels. And tonight, he's going to be sharing some creepy Christmas stories from his collection entitled Christmas Ghost Stories, a collection of winter tales. So I invite you to spark that Yule log. Let's relax, dim the lights, and welcome Mark Onspaugh for a late night conversation here on the Necronomicast. And now calling in on the Necronomicast hotline from Morrow Bay, California, I'm very, very happy to have on the show Mr. Mark Onspaugh. Mark, how are you today? I'm doing well, Brian. How are you? I'm great. It's really exciting to have you a part of the program. I was talking to some friends, uh, my wife, some of my coworkers, and uh, I, I was explaining that you're going to be on the show, and they're like, well, what's he going to be talking about? And I'm like, well, we're going to be talking about Christmas ghost stories. And they're like, Christmas ghost stories? How are you going to get a <laughs> How are you going to talk about Christmas and ghosts and things like that? And I'm like, hello, have you ever heard of the Christmas Carol or Charles Dickens or anything like that? I it's, it just lends itself perfectly. So it's, it's great to have you a part of the program, and um, I think we're going to have a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks. So uh, I was looking and, over and, your... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say Charles Dickens was my uh, first... I, I don't remember if it was the Alistair Sim or the Mr. Magoo version, but uh, that's where I first heard about Christmas ghosts when I was a kid. So I think that's most of us. I don't know how... Um... How old you are? Uh, I'm 46, and when I was a kid, there was a great 1969 ABC cartoon adaptation of A Christmas Car- uh, Carol, and it it scared me as a little kid when I first saw it when it was played at Christmas time because it had a really frightening depiction of of Jacob Marley, uh, the the three ghosts mm-hmm. and, and everything. Mm-hmm. So uh, I remember being scared <laughs> of of Jacob Marley at Christmas time growing up. I don't blame you. I mean, you know, they always have that, uh, no matter what the adaptation is, they have that device where Scrooge goes in and the knocker is kind of a strange face and then it kind of morphs into a ghost face. And right away, you know, you're in for uh, a bit of a ride. Right. He describes Marley's hair uh, as um, kind of like flames, like, you know, like he's almost, you can picture him almost burning burning in hell uh, with these these the kind of the the flame the hair of a like looks like flames. oh yeah and yeah. and wailing and uh i always love that line I, I wear the chains i forged in life and then he's telling uh ebenezer that his chain must be a very ponderous weight by now yes you know, unless he changes his ways yes so it's, it's a wonderful story and uh you know dickens uh i guess he was actually inspired by a uh a place called, get this name, Field Lane Ragged School, which was uh, for London street children. And that partially inspired uh, this, this tale of the uh, 
street urchins, you know, and then the, the miser who, you know, redeems himself by the end and becomes a generous, good soul. With The Christmas Carol being written in 1843, I read that Dickens also, like, he um, toured uh, tin mines, which were, um, in, I, I don't want to say employed, but they they had a lot of child labor back then. Um, the, these tin mines, you know, he was really angered at seeing these children working in mm-hmm. these, these appalling conditions in, in, in 1843. I think, yeah, anything... Uh... In fact, Monty Python had kind of, you know, not to be belittle uh, child labor and everything, but they had a thing where these two guys are kind of comparing their Dickensian childhoods. And one said that he grew up in a box by the side of the road. And then the other guy says, oh, we would have been happy with a box. (laughs) I remember that bit. I remember. I'll have to look that up. I totally forgot about that. I might have to find an audio audio clip of that and insert it in. I do remember that. That That was a good bit. To us. Oh, well, we were evicted from our hole in the ground. We had to go and live in the lake. Hey, hey, you were lucky to have a lake. There are over 150 of us living in a small shoebox in Middle Road. Cardboard box? Right. Ah, oh, you were lucky. We lived for three months in a rolled up newspaper in a septic tank. Right. Every morning we'd have to get up at six, clean out rolled up newspaper, eat a crust of stale bread, then we'd have to work 14 hours at mill, day in, day out, for sixpence a week. Aye, and then we'd, when we'd come home, Dad would thrash us to sleep with his belt. Luxury. <laughs> now, we were talking about the chains that we forged in life. Uh, let's talk about the chains that you've been forging <laughs> in life. Oh, well, thank you so much. <laughs> you're a native Californian. Um, looking at your I bio, am, yes. um, you're a big fan of horror, science fiction, and, and DC comics. So you're you're kind of a guy after my own heart. I I enjoyed DC comics. Oh, good. As a as a kid growing up too. Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I I I was buying comics uh, before there were comic book shops. You know, I get them at the local liquor store, and uh, every week I would run down and well, I wouldn't run. I'd probably take my bicycle. But uh, yeah, I love DC comics. I haven't read much lately, but I still love the characters. Oh, sure. You know, I would um, I, I would ride my bike to, uh, we had a comic book store here in Omaha. We still do, in fact. It's called the Dragon's Lair. And um, I used to love going there and, and, you know, going through the comics. And I, I had a sister. She's passed. But um, when I was a kid, she was oh, she, she was 20 when I was born. And so in my house growing up, she was out of the house, but she had a lot of her old comic books and, and next to the Archie and Jughead and all that stuff, there was a lot of great EC comics and just the frightening comics, uh, of the day. So I was, that's, oh. I kind of got my, cut my teeth listen or reading those, um, uh, the scary tales from the crypt kind of, kind of comic books back in the day. Right. And EC had a lot of great stuff. And then DC had, uh, House of Mystery mm-hmm. and um, some titles like that. And, uh, yeah, all that stuff was wonderful. I think your sister and I were probably born around the same time because I've, I've got about 20 years on you. Oh, okay. I'm now a respected elder. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> maybe not so much. <laughs> so so you're a fan of the horror genre. Uh, I, was, I, I thought it was cool. I was reading through your bio. You worked with... Uh, the Groundlings Theater in L.A., and you studied under people like Lisa Kudrow from Friends, and and uh, I did. How did yes. you, how did you get uh, 
involved with the Groundlings. Amazing. Well, I I took classes with the Groundlings. They had a uh, a sort of a thing where you would audition to get into uh, the introductory class, and uh, I did and made it in, and I had a lot to learn. But Lisa was uh, one of the instructors I had, and she was just starting in Friends when uh, I took that class, and she was just wonderful and you know so creative and so funny. And uh, that was that was a really good experience for me because I had a tendency back then, this was in the 90s, to be inside my head too much. And to do good improv, you've also got to have a lot of physicality. And mm-hmm. uh, that kind of helped me. And also uh, kind of writing dialogue, things like that. Even if it's improv, they do have some exercises where you write out a scene and an improv uh, or a monologue of sorts. And that helped my uh, screenwriting and my prose writing as well. Did you ever have to do any, um, for an assignment or anything? Did you ever have to do any stand up or did you ever do any stand up or anything like that? I, I've done, um, stand up in more of a corporate setting. I worked for the daily news here in Los Angeles for, uh, a number of years and they would have sales kickoffs and I would get up and do a bit or be a character or something like that. So I'm okay talking in front of a crowd, but it's usually been a crowd of people that I know, mm-hmm. which is a little bit more of a you know, a bit easier than standing up in a room full of strangers and praying you don't bomb. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, <laughs> you can't be afraid to bomb in, in comedy. That's for sure. No, no. But I mean, I, from everything I've read, every stand up still gets nervous no matter how many times they've done it of going up in front of a crowd. And I'm just not sure I'd want to make my living that way. Right. I'm not saying I could, but you know, that sounds very daunting to me. Yeah. And and then from there, you studied special effects makeup in college. I did. Um, actually, that was uh, after college. I uh, I loved horror movies, and I, I actually wrote Rob Bottin, who did The Howling, and he was in the middle of The Thing when I wrote him. And I had read that he had been Rick Baker's protege, and I'm sure you know Rick Baker. Oh, sure. And he's just uh, an amazing talent, and, and so was Rob. Rob's out of the business now. But um, I wrote him asking him basically if I could be his protege. <laughs> and we became friends, and I worked on a, uh, an Amazing Stories with him, uh, a Spielberg series. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we did, uh, we talked about writing and stuff, but nothing really came of it. But it, it was really fascinating to be in the workshop and to see the work he was doing. And then I studied under uh, Tom Berman who did uh, cat people and um, um, a lot of stuff. He worked on the planet of the apes, the original one with John chambers and also did a version of Island of Dr. Moreau with uh, Michael York and Burt Lancaster. Oh, wow. Which I actually really like. And uh, Rick Baker came and talked to the class and uh, I got to speak to him. So that was all like a dream. And I'll tell you, my sculpting was kind of okay, and you had to be a really good sculptor back then because there was no CGI. Everything was practical. Yeah. Um, and I decided that I wasn't good enough to sculpt what I could see in my head, but I could write something, and I told Rob that I was stepping away from makeup. And he goes, well, why are you doing that? He had a very deep voice. And I said, well, you know, if you're the makeup guy, you create a creature, but if you're the writer, you create the entire world that – the movie exists in. He said, well, what have you got a God complex? 
<laughs> and I guess maybe my, uh, most writers do <laughs> in one way or another. Funny. That's cool. But uh, I still love horror and uh, especially good effects, whether they're CGI or practical. I just love that stuff. Three or four episodes ago, I had the opportunity to talk to Kevin Yeager. And, um, oh, okay. Yeah. So I was talking to him a lot about the horror movies and everything. But I tell you what, if you go back and listen to that show, or if you listeners back there are, are behind, uh, when you go back and listen to this, some of the, the good stories on that show uh, were him talking about working on movies like Face Off uh, with um, uh, Nicolas Cage, and then the, he did the Mission Impossible thing. So he, uh, he was very interesting to talk to about the horror aspect of it, but just special effects in general. And, and what a great time for you to be involved and in, in kind of study with, uh, with people like Rick Baker and, and kind of the golden age of like practical effects. Oh, it was great. I heard one great story was, um, I don't know if you ever saw the, um, movie, the beast master. Oh, sure. Of course. Yeah. Um, there was a guy, now I'm now I'm fuzzy. I'm not sure if he tried to get in on that or if it was the Swamp Thing movie, um, the Wes Craven one. Harkening back to DC again, but he claimed that he was an expert in effects, and so they they gave him a shot, and then he was due on set with with uh, some rubber, you know, some suit or something, and they couldn't reach him, and they went and they found him in his workshop, passed out because he didn't have proper ventilation. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that kind of short-circuited his career <laughs> in effects makeup. So, like, did he fall? You know? Did he just pass out from like too much uh, uh, rubber cement, or uh... <laughs> yeah, too many solvents, you know, in the room? And like I said, there was no uh, ventilation to speak of. And it was—I I think it was actually his garage, you know—and he was passed out. Oh my gosh! And so they said, "Well, uh, maybe this is not the field for you." And makeup back then was a really small community. So it just, you know, got all over town that this guy didn't know what he was doing. And I, I think that kind of killed his career in that. Um, I think he's a greeter at Walmart now. I'm not sure about that. But, wow. Uh, Our best to him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, that's funny. As long as he's not passed out at the door. Yeah, he could be asleep, you know, uh, at, you know, too much, <laughs> too much spray paint or something in the... Uh... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So uh, th then, uh, then you start getting into writing, and uh, you, you've got all these books, you know, on your website, markonspa.com, When you have a link from our Necronomicast uh, website, but uh, short Thank stories, you. anthologies, novels. Uh, when did you start getting, um, you know, really serious about writing and getting and publishing? Well, I've always been interested in writing. My dad was an aerospace engineer, but he was also a writer, and. Uh... He actually had a story published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, which is a really hard market to crack. Hmm. He wrote a story, and then Frederick Brown came in on it. I don't know if you know Frederick Brown, but uh, Frederick Brown wrote uh, just a ton of short stories and was a, a very popular um, fantasy and science fiction writer and also did uh, mysteries, uh, some very um, lurid cover kind of mysteries. But... Um, I didn't get really serious about it until the like 2000, 2001. I think my first sale was in the year 2000 to an online uh, magazine called The Harrow. I really love writing and I would make time for it. And I wrote my novel, uh, The Faceless One, on my lunch hours when I was doing uh, ad sales. 
and uh, we'll just say that my lunch hours sometimes went to an hour and a half. <laughs> but that was a wonderful experience. That book just kind of poured out of me. I, I, some writers have that. You know, other other books since then haven't been quite so easy, but it was almost like that story was waiting to be told. And uh, I was inspired by that, by one picture of a mask I saw in a uh, book. And then the story just came to me. And uh, I just, I love writing. As we get closer to Christmas... Uh, you have a collection of ghost stories, Christmas ghost stories. And like I was kind of talking about earlier, uh, when we began this conversation, people were saying, well, Christmas, ghosts, what, you know, and, and we, we we talked a little bit about Charles Dickens, but even um, I, I put on an Andy Williams song and he talks about the scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. There will be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. So there, there is a tradition, American secular materialistic, uh, brought to you by Walmart <laughs> Christmas, probably doesn't uh, realize, I mean, we can't go to Target and buy, you know, any of the Halloween stuff anymore. You can't buy any ghost stuff for Christmas. But there's a long, long tradition of, of people through the um, oral tradition of stories and traditions of, of, of having um, ghost stories. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of this ties into the time of year. If, if Christmas were a summer event, I don't think that would have been quite as, uh, you know, quite as a characteristic of the uh, holiday. But since it's in December, you know, the days are very short, the nights are long, and, and for, you know, I think as long as there have been humans, you know, people would gather, you know, around a fire and someplace warm and there was nothing to do other than tell stories basically. And, uh, you know, stories of monsters and heroes and romance and valor, I think have always been with us. And, uh, you know, Christmas itself, uh, the Germanic people, you know, they celebrated Yule mm -hmm. and that was a, a pagan holiday and they had things like the, uh, the hunt, you know, the, the, uh, what was it? The night hunt, you know, that was, that was a sort of thing that if you saw it, you know, these kind of dread writers, then you would either die or you knew that pestilence or war was coming, mm. you know, and that's, that's a very festive kind of thought, <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and so, the wild hunt, the wild hunt. So, you know, people back then, you know, they would sing and carouse and dance and everything. And that was, that was the way Christmas started being celebrated. And then Oliver Cromwell came in and he didn't like people having fun. So, you know, all that stuff was kind of outlawed. Mm -hmm. And that, that was like 200 years, you know, from the 1600s until about Dickens time. And by then, people were starting to re-embrace those traditions of having a nice time during Christmas. And, uh, you know, Queen Victoria, her husband, Prince Albert, you know, brought in the Christmas tree. Mm -hmm. And Christmas cards started being sold at that time. And then merchants said, ah, well, this is a good time of year to tie in sales of uh, gifts, encourage people. Oh, you don't want to, you know, don't want to leave out the family with gifts, do you? Right. And uh, it became that commercial thing we all know and love that starts in September now. That starts in September, sure. I had friends, you know, they're taking down their uh, Halloween decorations, and the very next, you know, it was on a Saturday this year, and then on Sunday they're 
They're right out there putting up their Christmas lights and everything. <laughs> you know, you touched on Dickens. You know, he did. He, he him and um, people like minded like him, uh, kind of advocated, a, you know, a humanitarian kind of focus to the holiday. Um, yes, family gatherings. You know, special s- seasonal food and drink. Lots of dancing, festive uh, games, generosity. Yeah, and acts of charity. Um, I was in the Boy Scouts when I was a kid, and um, we would, quote, adopt a family every year, and everybody would donate gifts. You know, it would be like, well, we need a gift for an 11-year-old boy or a 12-year-old mm-hmm. girl or whatever it was. And then the parents would take, you know, this Christmas dinner with all the trimmings and all these wrapped gifts with the child's name on it. You know, and it. I think when you're 11 or 12, seeing something like that, really kind of gives you a clue to what Christmas is supposed to really be about. I don't want to sound like a peanut special, but, um, (laughs) you know, I think, yeah, I think generosity and charity are really central to, to the true meaning of Christmas. It seems like the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, maybe I've just been noticing it. Maybe it's something that's, that's kind of always been simmering underneath, but it seems like it's kind of bubbling up to the top now. Um, there's kind of a, like a, Kind of a uh, renaissance of things like uh, I see a lot of Krampus stuff nowadays, and oh yeah, you know, yeah. Um, when I was a kid, I remember uh, we had um, like international languages at school, and, and during our during our French lesson, Mrs. Rhoda would come in and she would talk to us about um, you know Father Christmas and little kids in France putting their shoes out. Uh, at night instead mm. of stockings mm-hmm. and, and you might get a switch of hickory in there that, you know, if you were a bad kid and instead of, you know, a peppermint stick, you might. So there's always right. kind, of, kind of underneath the surface, there is like this, uh, you know, you, you better be good because, well, Santa might bring you coal, but uh, Father Christmas might hit you with a stick or give your mom and dad a stick to, <laughs> <laughs> to, to hit or you a Krampus will take you Krampus will take you away in a cage. Yeah. Did you ever hear about Belsnickel? Now, Belsnick, I don't know a lot about. I know it was kind of imported here uh, by the like the Pennsylvania Dutch uh, community, yes. but I don't I don't know a, a very much about Belsnick. It doesn't have it doesn't roll off the tongue like Krampus does. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And Krampus actually traveled with Saint Nicholas. You know, he was kind of the right. dark side of things. But Belsnickel is kind of a combination of Krampus and Santa Claus. Okay, weirdly enough. It's this very hairy creature who is um, can be either male or female, and so they would have somebody dress up as Belsnickel, you know, in these communities, and he would he or she would go house to house, and they would invite Belsnickel in, and the children would gather, and Belsnickel would say, "Have you been good? Did you obey your parents this year? Have you done your chores and your homework?" And if kids said yes, they got a peppermint stick. And if they said no or they lied, they'd get switched, you know, <laughs> by the same thing. You know, I mean, it's just like, you know, and uh, Bell Snuggle is very judgmental. And I had a conversation about him or her with uh, some folks I know. And we were trying to determine what would happen if you lied. And we figured that Bell Snickle being supernatural would know just like uh, almost said Superman. Yeah. <laughs> Santa Claus. <laughs> knows if you're sleeping or if you've been bad or good, you know. Sure. And you better be good for goodness sake, which I always found a little bit frightening, you know. 
Yeah, um, the corporal punishment side of it was is pretty. <laughs> it's pretty funny in a way. The uh, there's a there's a Gay and Wilson cartoon where um, you know he could draw very frightening looking people. Um, are you familiar with Gay and Wilson's work? He was in uh, usually had a full color page in Playboy, and then also in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. His stuff's very macabre, a little bit like Charles Adams. Okay. And he has Santa coming through the door of this kid's room, and the kid is cowering, and he's got this huge, toothy, malevolent grin. And he says, well, I understand you've been a very bad boy this year, Billy. <laughs> and that would be Bell Schnickel. Bell Schnickel. <laughs> well, this was Santa Claus, who oh. I think is also rather judgmental. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really easy to go to the... Uh, the um, uh, the shopping mall and see the nice retired gentleman that's, you know, has the full beard and, you know, just trying to make a couple bucks um, during the season. And you're like, oh, yes, nice, nice, wonderful St. Nick. And well, the, the roots go back, you know, to <laughs> a little bit different time when they weren't afraid to, well, put a put a switch of hickory in your shoe. <laughs> <laughs> So or, or a lump of coal in your stocking. Right, right. So what was your, your uh, inspiration to sit down and did you just kind of have these stories and you just started to compile them for your Christmas ghost stories collection of winter tales? Or did you set off to uh, to kind of to, to actually put together a, a volume for people that might enjoy something uh, a little bit, a tinge, a tinge uh, sinister at Christmas time? Well, what, what actually happened was uh, I have my wife to thank for this. Because we had a uh, Christmas party, and there was a fire pit outside, and some of us gathered around that, and she suggested that we tell some stories. So I made up one on the spot, and as it turned out, she and I were the only ones that told any stories. And uh, mine was about a demon sent to kill the baby Jesus, which I'm sure will be a Hallmark special one day. And um, <laughs> Right. <laughs> And uh, she said, you know, later she's, uh, she said to me, you know, that was a really good story. You should write some more things like that and put them in a book. And that's what I did. And uh, then from there, I went and attacked Valentine's Day. Nice. So, <laughs> so uh, when you told the story with your friends gathered around the fire pit, did they kind of nervously look at their watch and say that they had something that they had to get to right away? Or uh... <laughs> <laughs> Well... They might have, but we found out here in uh, Morro Bay, which is a bit more rural than uh, she grew up in Manhattan and I grew up in the San Fernando Valley of uh, Los Angeles. Um, people tend to take a lot of food away with them for their Uncle George and Aunt Martha or whoever. And uh, so we had all this food spread out and we figured it would last us a couple of days after they left and everything was, you know, it was like those old cartoons where the uh, there's just a ham bone left on the plate, you know. <laughs> <laughs> turkey <Right>. carcass <laughs> a couple crumbs so for the mouse they might have been impatient to leave but they wanted all that food you know in plates first so nice but uh they seem to enjoy it and uh you know i i think people like being scared in the safety of their home or in a movie house or something like that and, you know get that adrenaline going and uh i think everybody likes a good scare at least once in a while yeah sure you know it's uh I, I like the idea of um, the, the the main Christmas party is kind of winding down, and maybe the kids are kind of getting sleepy, and then the adults kind of gather with their with their spiced rum or whatever, and 
and they're going to start talking, <laughs> sto- you know, they're going to start talking some stories. So we're kind of setting the mood and the fire is crackling and, and we're going to hear some kind of Christmas tinged ghost stories now. Yeah, I have three and I have, uh, one that, uh, well, you'll see the inspiration for that by the end of the story. And then I have uh, one that's a bit dark. And uh, then I have one that's that's kind of a sweet story. So we'll end with a piece of pumpkin pie with uh, whipped cream on it. So this story is called The Three. It was 6 p.m. on Christmas Eve, and the barman was ready for the usual collection of revelers lost causes, and unclaimed souls that would wander in and have to be shoot out at closing. In his five years tending bar at the Four Crowns, he figured he had seen every type you could imagine from every country on earth. So, when the gaunt man walked in, he was a little taken aback. The newcomer was tall, easily two meters, but couldn't have weighed more than six or seven stone. The gaunt man was dressed in threadbare pants and a black hoodie. The hood pulled low enough to obscure most of his face. The barman wondered if this might be a robbery and wished the fellow well because he had a cudgel under the bar that had been a gift from his great uncle in Dublin. Besides, what sort of person robs a pub on Christmas Eve? The gaunt man approached the bar and the barman detected a wheeze. The gaunt man placed a very bony hand upon the bar as if to steady himself. A good bartender knows when to keep his mouth shut, and you never addressed a fellow's looks or his infirmity. If they wanted to share what was ailing them, they would let you know soon enough. Happy Christmas to you, sir. What can I get you? The barman asked politely. The barman had set up candles to make the place more festive, and an occasional flicker seemed to hint at a large grin underneath the hoodie. The gaunt man pointed to a bottle of single malt. The barman retrieved the bottle. This thin, he asked, wanting to make sure. The slightest inclination of the hood. A nod then. The barman poured the gaunt man two fingers of scotch, then looked at him. The bony finger pointed to the top of the glass. The barman filled it, and the gaunt man put a coin down on the counter. As the barman was picking it up, the gaunt man took his drink and a bottle to the booth far and back, where even bright lights or sunshine never seemed to penetrate. The barman looked at the coin, which was a gold sovereign from 1843. That had to be far too much. Sure, it was Christmas, but a coin like this must be worth a hundred pounds or more. Perhaps the gaunt man was a rich eccentric, or perhaps he meant to pay for several rounds with friends not yet arrived. Deciding they could settle up when the gaunt man was leaving, the barman put the coin in a special compartment near the register, where he kept large bills and once a diamond engagement ring. Shaking his head, the barman wondered if the coin might bring enough for him to buy his girl a dress that she had wanted. In the back, the gaunt man drank his scotch in silence. Outside, the entire transaction had been witnessed by the laughing man and the pale girl. The laughing man was tall, though not as tall as the gaunt man, but he was of an enormous girth, weighing easily 24 stone. He had bright red hair a full beard, and a mustache that curled up at the ends quite on their own. He dressed in a simple suit and a top coat with a fur collar. He carried a walking stick with a boar's head on the handle. On his head was a bowler hat with a sprig of mistletoe in the band. The pale girl was seven or eight and quite lovely. Her hair was such a pale blonde as to be nearly white, 
and her eyes were the solemn gray of an overcast sea. She was dressed in a pale blue velvet dress and a tiny top coat that had a sprig of holly on the lapel. In one pale hand was a small valise. The laughing man frowned, something he did not do often. I say, has he been here every night? His voice was a pleasant baritone, one suitable for announcers and radio personalities. Different bars, but always in the back, where it's darkest. Alone? She nodded. For over a week now, she said. Her voice was soft but mellifluous, the sort of voice an angel might have. The laughing man shook his head, not at all happy. If something is troubling him, why not come to us? Perhaps he is too proud, said the pale girl. Perhaps he is afraid. Him? Afraid? Now the laughing man did laugh, a hearty booming guffaw that caused passerbys to laugh and wave. The laughing man tipped his hat to them and then bent down to the pale girl. How can he be afraid? He is fear incarnate. He is the writer of the nightmare. The pale girl looked up at him and nodded. But we are his family, and so we have a special place in his heart, a spot where fear might yet reside, and sadness. But what is he sad about? What ails him? asked the laughing man. But instead of answering, the pale girl was heading into the bar, and the laughing man had to hurry to catch up. The gaunt man did not look up when the laughing man and the pale girl entered the bar. He had known the minute they began peering at him through the window. It didn't make him angry. In truth, nothing could penetrate this miasma of sadness that had settled on him like a pernicious fog. The barman pointed to the pale girl while addressing the laughing man. No kids allowed in this establishment, sir. The laughing man turned to the bar in a motion that was quick and surprisingly nimble for one of his size. He motioned the barman to come closer with a conspiratorial gesture. The barman drew close and the laughing man lowered his voice. That's my brother, he said in what seemed genuine sadness. And that's his little girl, my niece. We're trying to get him to come home for Christmas. I thought she might be more persuasive, you see, and... The barman nodded. Just make it quick. I don't want to be sacked on Christmas Eve. The laughing man nodded and then produced a coin with a flourish. For your trouble. And as the two walked toward the back, the barman looked at the coin. Gold Sovereign, 1843. Now he was a bit worried. What if these coins were stolen, perhaps from a rich collector with ties to the police and the mayor? But if they were, wouldn't they just have spent regular money or wanted change? And him letting a family talk on Christmas Eve was hardly worth a hundred or so pounds. The laughing man and the pale girl sat opposite the gaunt man. Normally, no one would be able to sit next to the laughing man in such a small space, but he did not have his great coat on, and the pale girl was no larger than a wisp. The gone man raised his glass in an iconic, ironic toast and drained it. The pale girl tugged on the laughing man's sleeve and he inclined his head. She whispered in his ear and as he listened, he went pale. Emily says, you want to quit, the laughing man said, gesturing to the pale girl. It was not her real name. They had been in their respective positions so long they had forgotten their true names. The pale girl had decided that she liked the sound of Emily, at least for now and had asked that they call her that when it was just the three. Doting as on her as they always did, they let her christen them Uncle Marbletown, the gaunt man, and Uncle Greathorn, the laughing man. It's true, isn't it, Uncle Marbletown? She asked, her tiny forehead suddenly lined with worry wrinkles. 
The gunman sighed, and the temperature in the bar plummeted 10 degrees. Several patrons gathered their coats tighter around them, and the barman checked the thermostat. But surely you know you can't quit, protested the laughing man. If you go, now it works, and we shall all be in peril. Unhappy, the gaunt man wheezed, and a mouse under the table with a crust of bread became so despondent it rushed home to check on its family, leaving the choice morsel behind. The gaunt man reached for his bottle, but it was empty. He motioned to the barman, but that good fellow was too busy seen to a group of students who were ushering in their Christmas with spirits. The gaunt man excused himself and went to fetch another bottle. Liquor had little effect on him, and his gait was unimpeded, save for the fact that his hooded head hung low. The laughing man shook his head. What will the August company say? He asked worriedly. And what about the author? The pale girl patted the laughing man's ruddy face. It's all right, she said, smiling sweetly. I have an idea. What sort of idea, my dear? You and I are going to give him a Christmas gift. But he doesn't need anything. Doesn't he? She asked and smiled. The gone man returned with his bottle and a glass for the laughing man, and he also had a cup of hot cocoa for the pale girl, who sipped it gracefully. She wiped some whipped cream from the end of her nose and regarded her gaunt uncle with solemnity. You're tired of being the gaunt man, aren't you? There was a long pause, and then the gaunt man nodded. You'd like to try something else, perhaps something cheerier? Now he looked at them, and his eyes burned like coals. Any mortal would have been afraid, but there was none such in that little booth that night. But he is the gaunt man, the laughing man protested. He always has been. But nothing says he has to be, the pale girl said. There's nothing that says we can't trade off. The two adults looked at her thunderstruck. It was an idea that might only occur to a child, and its wisdom and simplicity were as sublime as the pearlescent gray of her eyes. The laughing man slowly grinned and then laughed a great laugh. The candles in the bar burned more merrily, and the barman discovered to his shock that the far end of the bar was suddenly laden with a lavish Christmas feast. He called his girlfriend as the patrons began to help themselves. In the rear of the four crowns, the three regarded one another. A moment, a wordless communication passed, and then they nodded. The barman looked up as they left. He had meant to bring up the coins, but thought perhaps he had imagined them. For here the patrons from the back were leaving, and they seemed so very different from what he remembered. In front was a pale boy with red hair. Behind him came an immensely large man with blonde hair and a beard, looking like something out of Norse mythology. And bringing up the rear was a tall woman, impossibly old and gaunt, her hooded cloak pulled tight around her, her face in shadow. Happy Christmas, the barman called, and the gaunt woman tossed him his third gold sovereign. And as the revelers of the four crowns began to sing of good King Winslet, the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future went out into the night. I love it. Great story. Thank you. It's like a like a refreshing little epilogue, a modern little epilogue to, to Christmas Carol with the three ghosts there. Thank you. Well, the next one is not quite so cheery, <laughs> although in its own way it is. Uh, and this goes out to uh, HP, 
Uh, this is called Christmas the Old Way. Mr. Lovecraft, going out to him? Yes. Very good. Yes. Every Christmas, we come down from the crumbling and mold-ridden shops and homes of our town to the black and heaving sea, where our relatives emerge from the waves with presents, special delicacies, and toys fashioned for the young out of bone and coral, shell and gem. For our part, we bring nameless things from the forest and mountains, and toys for the young ones of bone and stone, wood and web. Then we feast for an entire week on black widow egg wine and squid ink lager, heaping trays of venomous vermin and poisonous rockfish. We stuff ourselves on raw eels and frisky beetles and eat shark eye pie and hornet sting cakes. Finally, the big day comes, and the youngest are tricked out in all the finery we have brought in large trunks from the caves and footlockers from the sea. They dance and flap and caper about, their clothes the only human thing about them, and our aunts and uncles play eerie music on bone flutes and bladder drums, and we all laugh and sing the old songs. And come midnight on Christmas Eve, we all look to the skies, waiting for the first jingling of bells. And at last, we hear them. My sister starts to cry, and I sweep her up in my clumsy arms, my fused fingers making it difficult but I hold her up and kiss her and comfort her in the guttural tongue of joy. And then enormous tentacles covered in bells descend from the roiling clouds above and seize one, two, three, four, five, six, my sister among them. They're hoisted into the clouds and we dance until dawn, then fall into exhausted sleep under slick oilcloth tarps and overturned skiffs safe from the punishing sun. Later, as we dine on the traditional breakfast of jellyfish puddings and bare lung pasties, their pulverized bones rain down from high above, and it is just like snow. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Supernatural. You sound a bit mad there. <laughs> <laughs> Supernatural knowledge unknown to civilized man. I love it. Fantastic. Now, did you, do you, Thank enter, you. Do you entertain all your uh, Christmas uh, guests with these stories when they come over now? <laughs> <laughs> no, probably not. <laughs> I love it. Probably not that one. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there's a select group who like that story. My wife likes it. So, you know, she has to live with me. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's good she does. Oh, no. I, I, I just love, I always like um, listening to, you know, stories like that or, uh, you know, reading the stories and having my mind formulate these, these, these wonderful pictures. Uh, you have a great way of, 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 of doing that sculpting, uh, visions with your words. Very good. Very Thank good. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Yes. By the way, uh, just a quick aside. Did you ever see the movie Dagon? No, no. Which is, it's, it's quite good actually. Um, there was some stuff in there I found, uh, rather unsettling and you know it is lovecraft and um it's it's very well done i'm looking it up right and, now um, oh yeah i'm not i'm not familiar with one with that one i i think it's worth a watch well very good yeah it, it's um uh, definitely lovecraft inspired and uh there's just some stuff in that movie i really love because that's a 
uh, I'm not as good on my Lovecraft as I should be, but that's I just that was like one of his short stories, though, right? Uh, yes, Dagon, yeah. Dagon was and, a short um, story, right? And this is uh, sort of a combination of Dagon and uh, the Shadow over Innsmouth, and um, it's all about these people that live near the sea who are kind of unsettling and perhaps not quite human. And uh, that's all I'll say. Um, like I said, it's it's really if you love horror, it's it's a good movie to watch. Well, I'll check that out as part of my. Uh, hey, kids, we're gonna watch a nice, uh, <laughs> nice Christmas inspired, <laughs> or, or or a movie that the uh, the the Christmas storyteller told me to watch. Okay, Dad, sounds great. <laughs> right. Kids, let me tell you about H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes. Soon to have his own Disney series, I'm sure. Ah, yes. Soon to be on <laughs> on Disney Plus. Dagon. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> exactly. <laughs> be a weekly sitcom. Awesome. So, so I'll end my readings with a with a nicer story, which which is uh, family friendly. So this is the this would be the slice of uh, pumpkin pie with the whipped cream on top. With the whipped cream on it. Yes. Nice. Last one was more. Uh, we. Uh, another quick aside, we uh, had a uh, Thanksgiving event a couple of years ago, and, uh, you know, cranberry sauce is a big thing in those events, and people have their family traditional recipes. So my wife made one and uh, had it in a nice cut glass bowl, and then another woman had hers, and my wife's had uh, almonds and some orange zest in it and things like that, and mm-hmm. this other woman had hers and, you know, was cranberry sauce with a little bit of extra stuff and then this third woman comes in and and hers is in a tupperware and she says well this is our traditional recipe and it's cranberries with sauerkraut and onions and some pickle relish (laughs) it just sounded really vile and she walked away and i looked at my wife and i said that's not cranberry sauce that's punishment sauce (laughs) you know that's what you give the kids when they've been bad, you know. It's like, all right, it's punishment sauce for you. So it sounds like a bad episode of Chopped. Like we have uh, cranberries, <laughs> yeah, sauerkraut, right. uh, an old <laughs> served in an old ashtray. You know. <laughs> yeah, right. I, you mentioned cranberries. Yeah. I had to shudder real. I, I had a shudder up my spine because when I was a kid, I remember my mom made this cranberry dish, um, and it was my job. She had this old school like grinder that that kind of clamped to the countertop, and it was it was really oh, yeah. it was yeah. really old with a with a with a wooden handle, and it was my job to put the crammies in there, crammers in there, and this thing wasn't it was really this mechanism was really old, and so when I turned the crank of the handle to 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 grind up these cranberries, it was old and it was unbalanced, and so my little little kid hands and arms were just you know it seemed like an eternity. Like this, um, this eternity of of grinding out these smelly <laughs> cranberries. It's like the worst. Oh my gosh! It was like the it was like the worst uh, holiday chore. You know, like can't we make sh- can't we make sugar cookies? Can we do can we do something yeah, like exactly. yeah? When we're done, bread, man. When we're done grinding the uh, cranberries. All right, thanks, mom. All right. I have to say, the output of the grinder must have looked rather macabre too. Yeah, you wouldn't know if you stuck mm-hmm. your thumb in there or not. You know, it's it just. <laughs> <laughs> who who put this fingernail in the cranberry right. sauce? <laughs> that's the old that's the old Corey recipe right there. The the, the finger in the cranberry <laughs> sauce. If you find the finger, you win a prize. Uh, right, right. 
right. More cranberry <laughs> sauce. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> A double helping. Yeah, sure, 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 sure. All right, my man. So you had uh, a kind of a, a, a little bit, a dollop of sweetness on top of this. Yes. Very good. This is called Volpecula. Oh, wow. Okay. When she was born, her parents named her Zanzibar because her mother always thought it sounded magical. Since Zanzibar was a bit unwieldy for a little girl, they took to calling her Zoe. Zoe was a happy child and had two best girlfriends in their building, Bethany and Jacqueline. But Bethany's father got a job in Arizona, and Jacqueline's family went to take care of her grandma in Ohio. Sure, she still had friends at school, but no one was her best friend. Zoe turned seven and decided more than anything she wanted a pet for Christmas. A kitten, a puppy, even a hamster. She just wanted a pet of her very own. But her parents told her the apartment manager didn't allow pets, and they couldn't afford to make him angry. Someday, perhaps, they'd have their own house and then she could have a pet. Zoe cried even though she knew there was nothing her parents could do. What about a goldfish, her parents asked. She shook her head. She wanted a creature she could hold and love. You couldn't pet a fish, and she thought snakes, lizards, and spiders were icky. Zoe told them maybe Santa would bring her a pet, and they explained that the landlord wouldn't care where the little creature came from. It would have to go. That night when the house was dark and silent, Zoe crept out of bed to the window. She found the brightest star and wished on it and wrote a letter to Santa, too. She let the wind carry it, knowing it would find its way to the North Pole. As children know, Santa gets all their letters and stars hear all their wishes. The wishing fairy paid a visit to Santa in his workshop. They both agreed Zoe was a deserving child and would love a furry companion with all her heart. They also agreed that the landlord was a problem. Then they both had the same idea and smiled. The wishing fairy and Santa Claus combined their magic and gestured toward the heavens. It was two in the morning when Zoe woke up. A light in the window had awakened her and she got up to see what it was. There, sitting on the sill, was a most remarkable creature. It was like a small fox only made of midnight and stars. Hello, it said. My name is Volpecula. Hello, Zoe whispered. I have been given life so you may have a pet. Zoe reached out and touched him, wondering if he would be cold like the night or hot like a sun. He was warm and soft and made a little trilling sound as she petted him. Do you live in the sky, she asked. I do, but I am so small, I don't think anyone will miss me. Will I be all right until a real animal comes along? Zoe hugged him then, and the little girl and the little fox were happy. And so they remained companions for many, many years. One Christmas Eve, when Zoe was very old, she went to sleep for the very last time. When she awoke, she found she was made of midnight and stars, and Volpecula was there waiting for her. Hello, he said, and she smiled. And now they roam the heavens together, and they are happy to this day. Oh, I like that. Thank you. That's not actually in the book, but I am working on a second volume, and it'll be in that one. Oh, well, that's great. Yeah, Volpecula. When you when you first announced the title, I, it took me back to college when we, we'd go to those, uh, um, we used to have, there's an observatory, and they'd have um, these stoner astronomy shows. So I remember Volpecula, the, 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 fo the fox. Stoner astronomy shows. <laughs> yeah. I, remember, I remember them pointing out the fox. So 
Oh, that's a great story. Well, good for you. Not a lot of people know that constellation. It make a, a cool name for a a metal band, I guess. Volpecula. <laughs> <laughs> you know, speaking of stoner astronomy shows, this this will date me also. But I had some friends, and we went to see uh, Pink Floyd at the Observatory in a laser show. Yeah, you did. <laughs> and and uh, that was. Uh, <laughs> I tell you, the contact highs in that place were pretty <laughs> phenomenal. Why is everybody leaving, going to their car in the parking lot and coming back? You know, that's funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and why is everybody heading to McDonald's afterwards? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, the, the floor is littered with Little Debbie snack cake wrappers. <laughs> exactly. And those little donuts. Yeah, right, right, right. I thank you so much for sharing all those stories. Uh on the Necronomicast webpage, we have links. So um, if people are looking for for Christmas ideas, they can certainly, instead of putting in a, a switch of hickory in somebody's shoe or their stocking, <laughs> they can they can slip in one of your one of your many books and collections of stories. And uh, I look forward to volume two of the Christmas Ghost Stories, a collection of winter tales. And uh, I'm just looking at all these these books you have in your Tales from Tomorrow. I'll have to have you back again so we can talk about Dark Valentines. Great. I would love that. Thank you. Absolutely. And, and I appreciate it, Brian. You're, you're a good host. And, uh, you know, it feels like we're friends, you know, so that's a nice feeling. Well, now we are. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, thanks so much for being a part of the program. Uh, everybody, I hope you have a wonderful Christmas season. No matter what your uh, belief system might be, we just all need to have a little bit more of peace and goodwill toward man. And uh, we had a great time here tonight talking with uh, our new friend, Mark Onspa. Mark, thanks again, thanks my so man. Thanks so much. You bet. Take care, everyone. Take care, everybody. And thanks for listening to the Necronomicast. Ho, 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 dear listeners. I really enjoyed that conversation with Mark Onspa. Super nice guy, super talented guy. Really enjoyed listening to his stories and the way that he uh, spins spins a tale. That's pretty much going to do it for 2020. Yes, sirree. Turning the page on 2020, getting ready to start the new year off right with some great episodes of the Necronomicast for 2021. Working hard, sending out those emails. We got a crack staff here, a staff on crack here, getting everything ready. We're going to go big this next year on the Necronomicast. It's our 10th anniversary for Pete's sake. My word. Thanks to Wayne Brecky and Tim. Lori, Zip, Doug, everybody that's been uh, part of the Necronomicast family over the years. Going to continue the tradition of fantastic shows for you. Going into hopefully a better year for everybody. And on that, hope you have a wonderful Christmas, a great new year. This was episode number 191. Copyright. 2020 all rights reserved thanks for listening y'all now get some sleep <laughs>